Yeah, all right. All right. Welcome back. It's 2017 now. It was 2016 last time I was in here. Now it's 2017, and it, it feels very much the same, but yet somehow so different because there's a seven at the end when I write out checks. Who writes checks anymore, by the way? I have to write them out to my landlord. I used to have to. I thought that was pretty ridiculous in this day and age of direct deposit. Anyway, welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of sports, uh, culture, adventure, technology, science. Uh, and every other week, we take the opportunity to preview a subject, an interview that we're going to bring you the next week. And this week, I wanted to, I wanted to tell you a little story. I wanted to... I wanted to set it in 1960s Los Angeles, just south of downtown Los Angeles, um, in an area called Maywood. And uh, it starts with two men gathering guns and setting up mattresses on the top of a building in the neighborhood of Maywood. Um, Trouble was a brewing, you see. Uh, Word had gone out to motorcycle gangs throughout the south and west that Ed Big Daddy Roth was a marked man. Roth, I need to drop some knowledge on you. Roth at this point was the chief evangelist of Southern California's very vibrant hot rod scene. Um, he was a, stood six foot four. He was a gentle giant, often decked out in a top hat and red tails. He built cars that were, uh, well, they were kind of like absurdist works of art, and they inspired toy makers. He was also an illustrator and a savvy marketeer, creating a colorful world of monsters that he would put on T-shirts and decals that that kids enamored of this hot rod culture coveted uh, across the U.S. None of his characters was as popular, though, as Rat Fink. Uh, It's probably his most enduring uh, cartoon character. Uh, it was an oversized rat with vicious fangs and bloodshot eyes. Um, kind of a kind of a warped version of Mickey Mouse. And the story was that uh, Rat Fink lived in a junkyard, and he built any cars he wanted to out of used parts. In other words, he was living Ed Roth's dream. Uh, rat Fink shirts flew off the shelves, and uh, he eventually moved into a building a studio in Maywood, California, the aforementioned studio, uh, which is right on the banks of the Los Angeles River. This neighborhood is interesting. I, I bring up Maywood a couple of times now, and I think it bears mentioning that, that this was an area that a lot of hot rod culture kind of congregated in. Um, you had the painters, you had car painters like like uh, Ed Big Daddy Roth. That's how he started out. Um, you had tuners, you had detailers, guys that were taking cars from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and and tweaking them out, you know, making them a lot faster, pinstriping them, uh, drawing flames on them. And then, of course, uh, it was also home to Roth's studio. So Ed was Ed was a guy who, you know, who got into, he had like a day job at Sears, but at night, his true passion was pinstriping. And this is this is what you you kind of see when you go to old car shows nowadays. You see these cars that have flames alongside of them, um, uh, crawling up the hood. You see stripes um, in, in really intricate, really interesting patterns um, uh, painted across them. He was really good at this. Um, in fact, he was good enough to leave his day job at Sears eventually, uh, as California's hot rod culture was just blown up. 
But he also created, and this is how he made his name, he created these incredible one-off cars in the 60s, taking advantage of the creativity which uh, was allowed by fiberglassing. This was kind of like a nascent thing that, that um, you know, tinkers and, and people who worked on cars were starting to experience with epo- uh, experiment with uh, epoxy and resin and, and fiberglass, create entire new shapes off of cars, take like old chassis of cars and then redo them completely. Um, his first creation in 1959 was the Outlaw, and it was basically based on an old Ford Model A, one of those ones that were the, it almost looks like a carriage, where the kind of carriage, the two-seater carriage is up in the back. In the front, he had a Cadillac engine that he put in that he just exposed and, and chromed out. It's kind of like, when you think about an early, early hot rod, that's exactly what the Outlaw looked like. Um, then came the Beatnik Bandit, which was based on kind of the, the frame of a 1950s Oldsmobile and looks straight out of the Disneyland Autopia sketchbook. It had like a, a plexiglass bubble top and this really cool like stripey pattern around it. Um, and then he was commissioned. I don't know if this is 100% sure, true, but he was commissioned apparently by the producers of the Adams Family TV show uh, to come up with with a with a with a car that, 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 that would appear in the show. And he, and it's kind of like, if you can imagine like a ghoulish Cinderella carriage, uh, in hot rod form, that's exactly what, what the Druid princess was. So he was this guy who basically he, he, you know, next week's guest has a wonderful quote about him. He says, Roth was the first to take the automobile into the irrational world of abstract thought, something that Pablo Picasso and Salvador Dali attempted in the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, he'd take these cars on road shows and, and off the back of them sell T-shirts and decals. He was, you know, the rat fink character was alive and well at this point. And, and he created such a demand that in 1962, the toy maker Ravel, I don't know if you remember Ravel, Ravel did uh, model kits. Um, so kids could buy plastic model kits and, and, uh, build like airplanes and a whole bunch of, I did this crap all the time when I was in my, my early teens and, and, and make, uh, like battleships and airplanes. Well, they could also make hot rod cars. And, uh, and so they worked out a deal with Roth that they could use his, uh, his images and his, his designs and license them. And they paid him one cent royalty for every, uh, for every model kit sold. And in one year, he made $32,000 off of that. So you can just imagine, I mean, that's, that's hundreds of thousands of model kits sold. Um, what he did was he changed the perception of the automobile. This is probably his most lasting impact. He changed the perception of the automobile as something just for transport or as, as something for sport, racing, into a canvas that could be used for creative expression. Um, he was a relentless creator. He was a sign painter, of course, a car customizer, cartoonist, a magazine publisher. But above, above all, he was a he was this he had this relentless, curious mind. He was a he was a lover of the new, the niche, and uh, and the outlawed, and especially the outlawed. We should say uh, his studio, Roth Studios, was a gathering spot for beatniks, for musicians, hot rodders, bikers, hell's angels started coming around. Also, the likes of Tom Wolfe, the famous uh, author, 
another artist. In other words, what, what City Light Bookstore was in San Francisco, that famed uh, gathering of um, or, or, or central location for, for beatnik culture in San Francisco, uh, Roth's studio was to hot rodders and, and bikers, and especially and increasingly in the mid-1960s, the real tough gangster kind of bikers, the kind that everyone was completely scared of, uh, the Hells Angels. But Roth romanticized them. He saw them as, as cavaliers. He saw them as guys living, living true, like really embodying the sense of adventure, um, the outlaw sense of adventure. Um, and he was so closely tied to them. In 1966, Time magazine went as far as to claim Roth was the uh, quote-unquote supply sergeant for the local Hells Angels. Um, this, of course, had the somewhat adverse effect of inviting scrutiny from uh, the FBI, who made uh, twice-weekly visits, I believe, and the IRS, who were, were digging through his books to look for any kind of financial malfeasance. They, of course, found none. Um, but he would take photographs of the bikers that came through his shop, um, and he'd make posters out of them. Kids love that shit. Kids were, they, were, they loved that modern-day outlaw stuff. And keep in mind, like, you know, if your parents didn't like it in the 60s, you were certain to adore it and collect as much as you could around it. And so they would snap up these posters. And in 1967, he started Chopper's Magazine, which was really the first magazine to look at motorcycle customization and, and really kind of hero these, uh, these Hells Angels, these, these members of outlaw uh, bike gangs. The outlaws themselves, of course, his subjects, thought that they uh, deserved a little bit more than just like the small change that Roth would pay them for for taking photographs of them. Um, And uh, by one account, on occasion, when Roth was gone, uh, a whole bunch of bikers would roll into studios and basically scoop up just tons of decals and T-shirts from which uh, Roth made the most of his money and make off with them and and basically resell them as, as compensation. He arranged for more compensation for them. After all, like, you know, massive outlaw biker gangs have a way of making you change your way of doing business. I don't have personal experience with that, but I can just imagine the mind frame at the time. Um, But things eventually escalated again, which brings us, which brings us to this rooftop, uh, uh, the, the rooftop encounter in Maywood, uh, with which we, we began this tale. According to next week's guest, uh, Roth and some of his friends um, had set up on the roof in anticipation of a, of a big shootout with these biker gangs. Eventually, they were going to come and they were going to basically work out a deal so that Roth would you know be paying up for as long as he was still in business. Um, and Roth wasn't having that. You know, he was a very principled man. He was a very gentle man, very sweet-natured by all accounts. But uh, he, was, he, was not, he was not a fool, and he wasn't going to be taken advantage of like that. And there are kind of a few differing accounts of what happened next. So we've done our best to kind of collate and sum up uh, the story. So they eventually came. The bikers came not on bike but on foot, and there were dozens of them. They were streaming down Slauson Avenue. Uh, where Roth Studios were located. They surrounded his spot and apparently fired some shots into it the next day. Um, next week's guest, uh, a close collaborator of Roth's, went in the office and, and saw bullet holes anywhere. They didn't, they didn't hit Roth. He, he stood his ground, and he came up with a plan. He challenged the leader of the gang to a fight. And this is like a big, badass Hell's Angels bike gang leader but roth 
was fearless. He was six foot four, and get this, he was also a black belt in karate. <laughs> That's right. He had found time while uh, customizing cars and, and building up a kind of a, a kind of a artistic empire uh, and marketing it. He had found time to to get a black belt in karate. Anyway, they went mano a mano against each other, and Roth, uh, by all accounts, gave him uh, the pummeling of a lifetime. What he then did was very smart. He told the gang, who witnessed their leader getting his butt kicked, to tell everyone else that he was the one who had gotten a beating uh, and, and that he lost the fight. And he did that in order to stave off any kind of ideas of, of retribution or avenging this guy. But the experience soured him. It was, it was a little bit too rock and roll. You know, this is a guy who, who placed so much uh, love and faith and, and passion into bike culture and into these people he perceived as, as real heroes of the land. And they, they, kind of, they kind of came up and ganged up on him to the point where he, he just thought, you know what, this business, this business is over. And he piled all of the posters that he had uh, that he had remaining of these guys in, in the back and, and, and set fire to him. His association with bikers also eventually cost him his contract with Ravel. Um, the t-shirt business began faltering. A new wave of chopper, chopper customizers riding on the popularity of, of films like Easy Rider in 1969 uh, was pushing his business to extinction. And by 1970, Roth Studios was no more. And uh, with Hot Rod culture shifting out of the spotlight, Roth uh, went to work for a family of hoarders, actually, that collected so much movie set memorabilia and cars, they briefly opened a showroom in the early 70s. But by 1976, he was working at Knott's Berry Farm in the art department doing lettering and striping on the sets, and he had been baptized a Mormon. His contributions to hot rodding are dismissed by some purist, mainly because of his work in fiberglass and, and, and for kind of the outlandishness of his designs. But his personality, um, his characters, his cartoons, uh, they remain his legacy and they endure to this day. Next week, we have as our guest one of Roth's disciples, a man named Robert Williams, an artist who um, took a lifeline that Roth tossed him in the early 1960s and went to work for him. Uh, and he eventually became the leader of an art movement that only got its due really later in life. Um, Robert Williams is, is a raconteur, a, a wonderful teller of stories. Uh, he's a misfit, um, and he can teach us a little bit about uh, independent thought uh, and the courage of independent thought in the face of, of mainstream criticism. All right, that's it. I'll see you next week.